Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And I'm Eli. And today we're talking about the Iranian trans activist Maram Khatun Mulkara. I have some content warnings before we begin this episode. We're going to be talking about historic and modern transphobia and homophobia, including from the government and within the medical establishment, with mentions of violence, institutionalization, and imprisonment and execution. There's also going to be the use of terms for queer people in quotes that we might consider outdated or inappropriate, and one instance of swearing in a quote, and we're also going to be talking a bit about the Iranian Revolution. If any of that sounds like something you don't want to listen to, feel free to skip this episode and check out any of our other content. I'd like to thank Awfully Eden on Twitter for originally drawing our attention to Mariam and suggesting this episode, and I'd also like to thank our patrons who chose the topic of today's episode. And if you become a patron of Queer as Fact, you also get to vote on episode topics, so consider that. While we're talking about Patreon, I'd also like to shout out some of our patrons who have supported this podcast. Thank you to MK, Dwayne Leckie, Alex May, and Rebecca Galotta for supporting Queer as Fact. Yay, we love you. <laughs> it's true. It's true. We've got a very short lit review today. Incredible. It's not Yay, really a lit we review. Love you. <laughs> <laughs> So most of my sources on Mariam come from interviews that she herself did throughout her life, which we love. <laughs> Very convenient. Mm. Did she do them in English or are they translated? A lot of articles I read didn't specify, but from what I understand, she did her interviews in Farsi and they were translated. Okay. I also relied a lot on the work of the Iranian-American scholar Afsana Najmabadi, who's written a lot about gender in Iran and also interviewed Mariam for her work. So she okay. also quotes directly from Mariam. Cool. I also want to apologize if I get the pronunciation of any names or any Farsi words wrong in today's episode, and I do also want to acknowledge that there's a storm outside and it's pretty windy, so sorry if you can hear that. So Mariam was born in 1950 in the village of Abkena, which is in northern Iran. She was assigned male at birth, but she said in a 2004 interview, When I was very small, I used to scream when they tried to dress me in boys' clothes, and when I was taken to toy shops, I wanted dolls instead of boys' toys. I played at cooking with the neighbouring girls, and every night I prayed for a miracle, but in the morning I looked at my body and it hadn't happened. In her teens, Mariam developed a crush on a neighbour's son. She says, I tried everything on him. I even tried hypnotising him. Okay. <laughs> I'm very curious as to what that looked like. Yeah, did she have to like get him to sit down and be like, we're just gonna like let's do play a thing. hypnosis. Please look at this spiral. Follow <laughs> the spiral. <laughs> yeah, I, d I don't know. But then she says, I would dream about him, but it was always sad because I knew it wouldn't work. So she started to think that she might be gay until she got a job working as a care assistant at the local hospital where she met a doctor who himself was trans and who suggested to her that she might actually be trans. And he explained to her about the possibility of gender confirmation surgery. At this point, there was no law in Iran pertaining to gender confirmation surgery, so anyone with the means could access surgery, more often by traveling to Europe than in Iran itself. With the right connections, people could also have their gender on official documents such as birth certificates changed. Just like in a legal way or in a way where you like bribe someone onto the table and they're like, I guess we'll pretend that was always like that. More in a bribery way. I think the one specific mm. story I found of a woman who did this, she moved from her village to Tehran. And when she arrived in Tehran, she went to a government office and was like, look, I've moved from my village. I didn't have any identification documents. I've lost my documents. Can I just get new ones drawn up? And she just got the new ones drawn up as a woman oh, when okay. her original ones had been as a man. And then she just did that. Very sneaky. Good. Yeah. yeah. So I think it was probably you could bribe people or if you happen to have a friend who worked in that office or that kind of thing is mm. the impression I got. So there was no specific legal path 
okay. to have your gender changed on ID documents, but there were ways and people did do it. So we talked about instances in Britain in the first half of the 20th century where often a way that people could kind of loophole their way into getting their sex legally Mm -hmm. changed was through, like, a friendly doctor, you know, an ally doctor, (laughs) Um, (laughs) basically being willing to say that you were intersex and that Mm -hmm. your sex was, like, incorrect on your documents in the first place. Is that the kind of thing we see appearing or is it literally just like, you know, the situation, the official knows the situation and you're just like, here's, you know, a thousand dollars. A thousand nineteen fifties around dollars. Yes, yes, a thousand around dollars. (laughs) I'm so sorry. (laughs) No, it definitely is the case that that was also a thing in Iran. In Iran, and I don't know like specifically the cultural or mm-hmm. social reasons for this, but in Iran, intersex conditions are much more well-known and have a lot more visibility than they do in our society. Okay. And from at least the 1920s, there were specific laws specifying that it was acceptable to have gender confirmation surgery if you were intersex. So that was the path a lot of trans people took by having the doctor say they were intersex to get surgery or, you know, saying it to get their documents changed. Yeah. Mm. So, like, we have problems in our society Mm -hmm. where intersex people are expected to go through surgery to conform to being what people expect a man's body or a woman's body to be like and having, like, non-consensual surgeries, infants and stuff like that. Is that kind of stuff going on there as well or is it just, like, you can access those things if you want? I didn't read specifically about things happening like what happens in our society where kids are given surgery before they're old enough to consent without their parents even fully understanding what's happening. But I would guess it does happen in Iran because it definitely seemed to be the case and seems to be the case today that both trans and intersex surgeries are geared towards the Mm-hmm. affirmation of the gender binary and kind yeah. of ensuring that everyone fits into the gender binary. Okay. And definitely today, Iran is a very gender-segregated society, yeah. so there's not really a space for somebody who doesn't fit into that binary. Okay. okay. So this is like a good situation in some ways and a bad one in yeah. others is the situation we're doing. Yeah, okay. yeah, that's right. In her late teens, Mariam moved from Abkhanar to Tehran, Iran's capital. Here, she began to go to venues like cabarets, nightclubs, and late-night cafes, which were common spaces for queer and specifically trans-feminine people together. At the time she began visiting these venues, Mariam was still wearing male clothing, but in what she describes as a very feminine way. One outfit she remembers was a black velvet suit with red flames on it. Oh, Oh, incredible. (laughs) (laughs) Do we know how these red flames were on it? No, that's all I know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, where were they positioned? I am unsure. Are they velvet? Did she paint them on? Are they sequins? Like, what are they? (laughs) I don't know. Unfortunately, nobody took a photo of them. Okay. But I imagine it was beautiful. Um, I imagine it was also horribly tacky. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, beautiful in a tacky camp way, but beautiful. So it was one day while 18-year-old Mariam was wearing this outfit home from a party that she recalls a car pulled up beside her and three people inside called out to her. She says, When they called me sister, I knew they were like me. Oh, this Aww. went much better than I thought it was about to. I started this sentence and I was like, I know this sounds like she's about to get catcalled and harassed, but that's not what's happening. Oh, yeah, yeah. Aww. <laughs> it's good. all good. They were just like, that suit is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the three people in the car were what Mariam refers to as transsexual males just like me, but what we would refer to as trans women. And she says that this moment was the true moment of my entry into a collectivity, a group of people like myself. Mariam began socialising with this group of trans women, and she describes going to parties where, quote, everyone was a woman. That is, even though they were known as males in social norms of recognition, they were women. 
The ambience was just like the ambience of womanly gatherings. We talked of fashion and women's issues. This has taken a very wholesome direction. <laughs> Imagine if when you were a teenager, a car just pulled up and was like, hey, you gay too when it comes to the club. <laughs> Get in, you're gay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Very convenient. Imagine being in the car, though, also, on the flip side, and being like, look, a gay. We can't just leave them out there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's true. true. Yeah, she doesn't really explain the steps from being like having them shout out in a passing car to like becoming friends. So I don't know if they pulled over then and there and were like, get in. <laughs> I guess there aren't, there weren't any. That was it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I guess so. So I want to talk a little bit just about the queer scene in Tehran at this time. So prior to the Iranian Revolution in 1979, which we'll get into later in the episode, Iran, and in particular Tehran, were viewed as what Jerry Zarit, an American gay man who lived there for some years, describes as, quote, a sexual paradise, saying, in terms of both quantity and quality, it was the most exciting experience of my life. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> That's such a thing to say. <laughs> there was, however, a sharp distinction made between two categories of gay man. And I'm talking about gay men here, but we will go back to talking about trans people. Bear with me. Yeah. So there was a sharp distinction made between the active and the passive partner. I'm not shocked, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) To quote Zarit again, the fucker is in no danger of being queer. Yeah. Well, that is succinct. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And we've seen this attitude before in many societies. Around the world and throughout time. (laughs) 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 So here we are. Again. So perhaps because of this attitude, from what I've come across in my research, it appears that Iran's queer subcultures and social scene mostly centered around people who identified themselves as a passive partner. Okay. So the people who would play the active role in homosexual sex often saw themselves as straight, didn't see themselves as part of this community, would be married and living an essentially heterosexual life. And just doing this on the side? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. This is a bit of a weird question, but like socially, is that like cheating on your wife or is that just like not the same thing? I don't actually know the answer to that. I'm not sure. Okay. I assume if your wife found out, she wouldn't be happy. Yeah, I was going to say, I assume this isn't socially acceptable. It just doesn't make you gay gay in the same way that being the passive partner would. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's my assumption, but I'm not actually sure. Mm. Are we going to talk about queer women at all? Queer cis women at all? No, not okay, really. Okay, I won't ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> We're okay. basically going to talk about cis men and trans women today. Okay. In the future, hopefully, we can talk about some queer cis women in Iran. So these queer social circles in Tehran consisted of a combination of people who would today identify themselves as gay men and also those who might identify themselves as trans women, although the distinction wasn't so clearly drawn at the time as it is either in our society now or in Iranian society now. But either way, all of them were assumed to be attracted to men and seeking relationships with men in which they would play a passive or perceived to be feminine role. Okay. So one man that Najma Badi spoke to for her book on gender in Iran described queer socializing rather as we might expect to be as being somewhere to like pick up or look for a relationship as, quote, for hanging out with like-minded men. And several of her interviewees seemed actively confused at the idea that you would try to pick up at a gay party. Oh, okay. That's a different vibe. (laughs) I guess that is how it is. If like the other half of your relationship is inherently unqueer. 
Yeah, yeah. So one said, you know, no, I'd go to the gym or something like that to pick up. I'd go to a party to talk to people who were like me mm. and just socialize. Okay. Mm. So I was going to ask, you've already partly answered, where they are meeting people for relationships and stuff like that. And it's mm-hmm. just sort of like cruising yeah. ads, yeah. cruising ears in a variety of places, I assume. Yeah, gyms were the only specific place I saw okay. reference, but I assume other similar okay, yeah, places. Yeah, type of thing. Okay. I guess... There's kind of no point in asking questions about what kind of stuff happened because presumably all kinds of different, Mm. you know, people have a variety of experiences. But, like, are they forming relationships with these quote-unquote straight men or is it more just, like, that's sex and they're having their, like, emotional relationships with other people within the community? Like, what's the vibe? I think there's many different vibes. So, yeah, in some cases, like, there was one reference I read, for example, to there being marriages between these people who identify themselves as queer and men who would have seen themselves as more masculine and not necessarily queer. Obviously, the language and understanding at the time was different. So I did see one reference to that and the fact that they wouldn't necessarily have wedding ceremonies, but they'd go and get traditional wedding portraits taken. Okay. And by traditional wedding portraits, do you just mean the style of portrait or are they going to like Sears and... (laughs) I'm not actually sure. I don't know. I like how I said Sears as if we have Sears in Australia. Yeah, I've spent a good like 15 seconds there being like, Sears? Like, profits? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> is my marriage going to be good? Please tell me. I guess our equivalent is, like, pixie photos here, but I don't know how widely understood a reference that would be even in Australia. I don't yeah. even know what pixie photos oh, is. okay, yeah. <laughs> you know those, like, very staged yeah. portraits that grandmothers want you to take so that they can have them in their house? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm not sure where they were getting the portraits okay. from. Not that you get wedding portraits at Sears. I don't know. <laughs> this is a mess. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I guess there must have just been some, like, queer-friendly photographers around. Well, I yeah. mean, anyone can take a photo, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Like, this is the 70s. It's not like photography is something exclusive that only yeah. some people have access to. So these attitudes do mean there wasn't, and there still largely isn't, any space in Iranian trans communities for same-gender-attracted trans people. Oh, yeah. And we're not actually going to talk about any of those people in this episode, but I did think this was worth mentioning. Yeah. So speaking with queer interviewees in the mid-2000s about the possibility, Nadravadi found that she was met with confusion and responses like, I don't understand. A man does sex reassignment surgery to become a woman so she can pair up with a man. They don't do the operation to become a lesbian. And so what was the point of transitioning then? Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we've heard that before. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. I guess that's just, just as nonsense when people in our society say it. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of says a lot about the people she interviewed and their conceptions of like gender and sexuality. Mm, mm, yeah. Yeah. It's definitely the case that being attracted to men is seen as a very inherent part mm-hmm. of, of being, being a, woman. a woman. And, you know, a part of your transition is that you will then go out and have a relationship with a man. And I guess it's also worth mentioning that there would have been these so-called straight, like masculine men who wanted to have sex with men who would have been attracted to other men like that. And also more feminine ones who would have been attracted to other people within that community as well, who also clearly don't really have a space. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So. Absolutely. And there was one story published in the paper, I think about in the 1970s, about two of these men who were part of the queer community getting married in a nightclub. And Najmabadi spoke to someone about that. And he was like, I mean, yeah, they published that story, but it doesn't make any sense. It would never happen because in reality, both these men would be attracted to straight men. 
and like. Yeah, I mean, okay, that's, that's a reflection of a norm, but that's not how people work. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The implication there, and this is a kind of weird angle to go on, like the implication of being attracted to sex with men is such a fundamental part of being a woman. Yeah. Does that extend to cis women? Like, is cis women sexual desire? I don't know Something... anything about cis women's sexual desire in Iran. I'm afraid that's beyond yeah. the remit of this episode. Because mm. that would just be such an odd thing to hear if it was the case that, like, cis women's sexual desire was seen as a fundamental part of their womanhood. I mean, that's not I guess a thing that you hear a lot. It could be more that their expected sexual behavior yeah. is more a part of their role as a woman, regardless of what they thought of it. Like, that's not too foreign to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's fair. Yeah, like the idea that being a woman means you're expected to be attracted to and have relationships with men is not a shocking idea. Yeah. Yeah. In the early 1970s, in her early 20s, Mariam began working for Iran's state broadcaster, the National Iranian Radio and Television, or NIRT. NIRT was seen at that time as a haven for gay men and trans women, and Mariam began presenting as a woman at work. Oh, okay. I was about to be like, was it actually, or is it like the way that everyone thinks the ABC is full of leftists? <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know the specifics of, like, you know, what company policies are, or what specific, like, reactions she might have had from colleagues, but she was able to be out at work. So okay. That. Which is, like, significant. She was also not the only out trans woman in the workplace at the time. What mm-hmm. a nice workplace. Yeah. So what is she doing at this workplace? I have no idea. Okay, does she have any kind of, like, job history or qualifications that we're aware of? Her previous jobs were as a care assistant in the hospital when she was a teenager, and then she worked in a beauty salon for a bit when she moved to Tehran. Okay. I'd assume it's, like, an entry-level job, and I'm Mm. not aware of her doing any study after school or, like, having any specific skills in, like, radio or TV. Okay. She began to socialize through connections she made at her workplace with what she calls the court circle. So this included family members of the Shah of Iran. Oh, okay. (laughs) NIRT was run by the Shah's wife's cousin, so the Shah's family had quite a strong connection to the broadcaster. I just assumed it was going to be like how we talk about the houses in the ball scene or something like that. And I was like, oh, no, you mean the court. You mean like the court. court. I mean the literal royal court of Iran at the time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Mariam began her trans activism around this time, as far as I'm aware, meeting with the Shah's wife, Farah Pahlavi, in 1974 to talk about trans experience and issues in Iran. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if she is just working an entry-level job. Yeah, I don't know what her job yeah. is. She's 24 years old. Wow. And she just to- arrived at work and she was like, hey, I need to speak to the queen about trans rights. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's exactly what she And did. they were like, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> we'll set up a meeting. And then they did that. Um, so she met with Farah Pahlavi. Farah expressed her support for trans people and she suggested Mariam form a group of trans people that the government could work more formally with to help work through trans issues and support trans people in Iran. This is all going shockingly well. It is going shockingly well. As far as I'm aware, this group never eventuated at the time, though I don't know exactly why or if Mariam tried and failed to set it up or anything like that. Okay. Through her workplace, I understand there was some kind of medical clinic kind of involved attached to the broadcaster. What? I don't know. They had an in-house... Medical clinic. Cool. So through that, Mariam was recommended to a specialist who recommended that she get gender confirmation surgery. 1970s Iran is a wild time. (laughs) 1970s Iran is not what you expected? No, I kind of knew that 1970s Iran was, like, very progressive. 
This is just like beyond what I pictured. Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. I will mention, and we'll talk about it more when we get to the revolution, that it is very progressive in some ways, but there yeah, are also yeah. a lot of political issues, wealth inequality. Yeah. It's functionally a one-party state at this time. Like, you know, there are a lot of social problems as well okay. in 1970s Iran. Yeah, I guess that's what surprised me, that I'm like, I know that in like five years' time they're about to have a revolution and radically overhaul this society. Yeah, I'm waiting yeah. to find out why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess it comes partly out of the fact that I think we fall into this trap and a lot of people fall into this trap where you kind of expect there to be a linear progression of if you support this, then you will support this and the next step is supporting this. So when we see a country like supporting trans people, we think, okay, that's quite far along in the progression. Yeah, Yeah, I guess to us it's like supporting trans rights is so much further along in the sort of like progressive – process than like dealing with wealth inequality and things like that like it's very easy to find people who support the one but not the other yeah yeah but that's not actually like a standard progression in the world that's just the progression that happens to be common in our society yeah yeah i mean i wouldn't say the australian government or society supports trans people now no absolutely not exactly so like (laughs) yeah yeah it also doesn't really care about wealth inequality (laughs) (laughs) that's another problem Yeah, but even, like, it's easy to find, like, socialists who are fighting for, like, workers' rights Mm, and wealth inequality who have just never thought about trans rights. And so it's very easy to be kind of like, oh, they've made it to trans rights. What else are they doing? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But obviously the world isn't really that way. Yeah. Yeah. And this doesn't mean that everyone in Iran is a radical socialist in the 1970s, to be clear. (laughs) Yeah. So after receiving this recommendation, in 1975, Mariam travelled to London to investigate the possibility of surgery. She says it was here that she, quote, learned about transsexuality and realized I was not a passive homosexual. It's interesting that she was, like, looking into the surgery before... Having this realization. Yeah. Well, this isn't the only time in her life she mentions having this realization. So when she first worked in the hospital as a teen and the doctor said to her, hey, I don't think you're gay, you're probably trans, she's had that realization. And she says again when that car of trans women happened to pull up next to her on the street (laughs) that she'd been socializing in these queer circles, but it was when she started interacting with those women that she sort of went, oh, okay, so maybe I'm trans. There's several points in her life that she emphasizes this, and what Nantrabadi suggests is happening and what does seem to be the case is there's a really strong emphasis in trans women's culture in Iran today in distancing themselves from homosexuality because being a gay man is still punishable by death, but being a trans woman is much more acceptable. So oh, that's there's okay. a lot of homophobia even in trans communities in Iran today and a strong desire to distance themselves from any possibility that they could be linked to gay male communities in okay. trans women's communities. Okay. okay. So I've heard before about the situation in Iran with trans people that mm. it is the case that because like there is a certain degree to which being trans is acceptable. Yeah that gay men are pressured to transition. Yeah. Would you say that's accurate? Or Because I've just been like, I've heard this. I haven't done research into this. Would you say that's accurate given what you've just said about there being quite a stark separation between the two? I think that is a thing that happens. So I read a few different things about that. I read one report by, they're called Outright International, and they're like an LGBT human rights organization that said they found no evidence of it in about 2016 in Iran. But I have also seen interviews with gay men in Iran saying my family pressured me to transition when I came out as gay. So I understand there's no kind of official policy 
where the government tries to encourage gay people's transition, but definitely within people's own families, it might be something they experience. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't really expecting that it would be a government <laughs> yeah. policy that yeah. gay men have to transition. <laughs> yeah, but it is definitely a pressure that some yeah. gay people in Iran do face, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Other queer people in Iran, I've read kind of talking about how, because there's very high rates of medical transition in Iran compared to almost any other country in the world. And I've read queer people in Iran talking about the fact that that's obviously because it's accessible more than it is in a lot of other countries, but also because there's no avenue to exist outside the gender binary. There's not very many avenues to be queer that mm. aren't through a transition to a binary gender. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Mariam returned from London without having undergone surgery for both financial and personal reasons. So as well as not being able to afford it at this time in her life. She'd also come out to her mother, who'd had quite a negative reaction and wasn't supportive of her transition. And Mariam was also quite a religious woman, a follower of Shia Islam, which is the main branch of Islam practiced in Iran. And she wanted to explore Shia rulings on gender confirmation surgery and how trans people should live before she went ahead with that. So in the meantime, she did, however, continue to live publicly as a woman, and she also began hormone replacement therapy. So around this time in the mid-1970s, trans people were becoming increasingly visible in Iranian society, and particularly in Iranian media. In 1974, for example, a series of articles was published in the women's magazine Itilaati Banovan, which told the story of trans woman Rashil Saeed Zadeh in her own voice. For many trans Iranians, it was through articles such as this one that they first learnt about the possibility of transition. And conveniently, this article or this series of articles was also incredibly detailed and provided a roadmap for exactly how Rashil had gone about her transition legally and medically. That's such nice. a handy thing to publish. Yeah. <laughs> this wasn't the only article like this either. There were several I read about, but this was kind of the most prominent example. Were these in, like, women's magazines, that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. They're in kind of women's magazines and lifestyle magazines. So they're kind of seen as just, like, human interest stories. Okay. Mm -hmm. Is it like the editor of the women's magazine is like, I know a significant subset of our audience is trans women who would like information on transness and transitioning. Is that what's happening? I don't know how consciously a decision was made to really step out the process in these articles, or if it just so happened that because they were very detailed articles, they inevitably talked about the steps they'd been through. So this article in Italati Bonovan talking about Rashil, it was all told in Rashil's own voice, but there was a little, you know, editorial paragraph at the start. And that was quite sensationalist and it wasn't necessarily here's an informative story for our readers who might be experiencing something similar. It was just like, oh, wow, look at this. This woman used to be a man. Yeah. I mean, I could see like the editor of the newspaper being like, yeah, that's something that'll sell magazines. But like Rachel being like, I'm going to give you the information you need. I have you. Yeah. Like, yeah. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah, so I think there were probably a few different competing interests in putting stories like this together. At the same time, partly because of the increased prominence of trans people in Iran at this time, there was moral backlash against transition. That was also linked to a broader anxiety at the time about the erosion of the traditional gender binary due to the Western influence of the Pahlavi court. So the Pahlavi court was seen as being quite decadent and quite Western and not adhering to traditional Iranian values. Okay. One article written at the time, for example, wrote that the confusion between genders, quote, threatens today's civilization in the same manner that 2,000 years ago civilized nations such as Greece and Rome were overthrown. Okay. <laughs> I yep. see. I see. It was all the gay sex. No, 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 no. It wasn't all the gay sex. It was all the confusion between genders. Isn't gay sex confusion between genders <laughs> in this kind of ideology, though? Yeah, yeah. I guess that's true. <laughs> it's always Rome, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> 
Greece and Greece. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like it's mostly Rome. <laughs> like, people tend to be like, yeah, Rome was so decadent that it fell. It's much less said about Greece. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I guess the Romans also believed that Rome was so decadent that it fell, which I feel like is a factor. Yeah, it, that's true. I think it's more kind of said that Greece dwindled rather than fell, though, so it tends to be much more of a, like, traumatic story. Yeah. Where yeah. Rome yeah. is used as the cautionary tale. Because yeah, yeah. for some reason we understand that Rome fell and you get those, like, stupid essays assigned to you in high school being like, why did the Roman Empire fall? As if it was, like, an event that occurred one day. <laughs> yeah. So in 1976, the Medical Council of Iran banned gender confirmation surgery except in cases where the patient was intersex. Oh, okay. I needn't have asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> now you know. Okay. Yeah. The full text of the decision explained, quote, Since this type of young man cannot become a future perfect woman and become married to a man as a woman... And since the hole that is created for them will most likely become a source of chronic infections, therefore such persons must be treated psychologically. Cool. Was the risk of chronic infections genuine or was this like a constructed thing? It is something that's talked about definitely later when Mariam does have surgery, which is in the 90s, but it seems to be the case throughout this time that the quality of gender confirmation surgery in Iran wasn't very good. Okay. Because there was no kind of formal process or training or anything. It was just a thing some doctors were doing. Oh, wow. They were just kind of like, I guess we have a look down there and figure it out. Yeah, like one government official I read quote in the 90s literally said they were figuring it out by trial and error. So. Well, sucks to be you if you're the error, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, there was genuinely quite a high risk okay. of complications uh, in surgery. So, is it illegal just to get this surgery done? And I, like, I guess we're talking about specifically about having vaginoplasty done. Like, that's not the only gender confirmation mm. surgery that exists for trans women, but that seems to be specifically what we're talking about this whole time. That seems to be what this quote is about. Yeah. Um, so, is it that it's illegal to get that done in Iran, or is it that it's illegal for an Iranian citizen to get that done? I'm not sure exactly what the law was. Definitely a lot of people did continue to travel overseas to get that done. Yeah. So I think it was an unclear area. So you've talked a lot here about, like, trans women and, mm -hmm. like, the sort of social position of them and laws around, like Eli said, vaginoplasty. Was, like, there a similar, like, rise in visibility for trans men? Trans men are much less visible generally in Iran, both at this time and into the modern day. I've read reasons that like speculate about why that might be the case, but I don't have a specific answer for you. Part of the reason is that there was definitely in this time before the revolution and after the revolution things changed, but there was space in Iran for, for example, there were mythological stories and even kind of stories in the newspapers of women who had lived as men to get a job and support their family or that kind of thing. Okay. So, so there were just kind of like socially acceptable avenues to live as a man. Yeah, there were socially acceptable narratives where someone assigned female at birth could live as a man mm. in the way that there weren't so much for trans women. Okay. So I think that's part of the reason that a lot more of the law and the conversation centers around trans women. Mm. That said, I don't know that much about the situation of trans men in Iran. Okay. Didn't you mention like a trans male doctor earlier that she met? Yeah, yeah. So the doctor at the hospital that Mariam worked as a teen that first suggested she might be trans was also trans, but I don't know anything about him. Oh, that's disappointing. Except that he was a guy that she met. That's all. Because that's quite a like socially prominent position to be in. Yeah. yeah, 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 it is. So he said this to her in her teens and she said it was only later that she realized he was trans. Oh, okay. So I'm not sure exactly how she came to that realization or if I mean, anyone he was working with would have known he yeah. was trans. So maybe, maybe was she just like went through her memories and she was like, oh, that's what he was saying to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I'm not sure. Because it does seem to be the case that quite a lot of trans people in Iran in, for example, the 60s when Mariam was growing up would have moved cities or something like that and then just begun living Mm -hmm. not openly trans in the new city. Like that woman I mentioned before who just moved cities and then just went and was like, oh, look, I lost my birth certificate. Can I have it back? Yeah, thanks. I'm a woman. And then just lived as a woman Mm -hmm. from then on. I mean, another reason then that, like, if we're not worried about official documentation so much really is that people tend to say that the effects of hormones tend to be – it tends to be a lot easier for trans men to blend into society as a cis man than for trans Mm -hmm. women to be the same as a cis woman. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, that may also be a factor. And hormones definitely were, as we've seen, because about Mariam is on HRT, that hormones were around at that time. I wonder how you go about accessing hormones. Definitely there was a black market. I don't know if there was a legal pathway. There was definitely an illegal pathway. Yeah, okay. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) There are some holes in my knowledge of life in Iran. I mean, I guess there were probably legal pathways for, like, women at menopause and things like that. Mm. And then there's a black market from there, at least, I guess. And Mm. also when you consider that, like, there's a lot more visibility of intersex people. Yeah. So, once again, you could lie and say you were intersex to get a prescription, probably. Yeah, that's true. That's a guess. Mm. And I guess, yeah, it depends on your doctor. Yeah. Definitely after this ban in 1976 on gender confirmation surgery, a lot of doctors did keep doing surgery and just claiming their patients were intersex. Mm -hmm. So that was a thing that continued. So Mariam in the 70s continued following her interest in Shia Islam's stance on being trans. She approached leading cleric Ayatollah Birbahani to ask for advice. Birbahani performed a practice known as Itzikara, which involves asking a question and then letting the Quran fall open to a page which will provide you with an answer. On the question of whether Mariam should live as a woman and undergo gender confirmation surgery, the Quran fell open to the surah or chapter on Mariam, or Mary, Jesus' mother. Oh, okay. That was very helpful. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty clear. So this is the only surah in the Quran with a woman's name as its title. So Bebehani took this as a very clear sign that Mariam should live her life as a woman. That does seem extremely clear that you walk in with the Quran and you're like, so am I Mariam? And the book is like, Mariam. <laughs> and you're like, all right, thanks, God. <laughs> so according to Mariam, it was when the Quran fell open on this chapter, that was it, what inspired her to take the name Mariam. So I don't actually know what name she was going by before this. Okay. 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 So she didn't walk in and say, am I Mariam? And it was like, yes, you are. <laughs> she kind of did in her heart. Yeah. She was like, who am I? And it was like, Mariam. And she was like, okay. Right. Thanks. Thanks. Sounds good. <laughs> Got it. Can I just ask quickly, is Mary, the mother of Jesus, really called Miriam? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, so in English she's called Mary, but that's not her name. Okay. That's I think Miriam's a nicer name than Mary. I think Miriam's a nicer name too. than Mary too. Miriam's a very nice name, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it is. Bebehani also advised Mariam to seek further advice from Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, who was seen as an authority on points of law in Shia Islam. He was currently in exile in Iraq because of his public denunciations of the Pahlavi government and in particular of their close relationship with America and their general Western influence. Okay. So in 1964, Khomeini had written the legal commentary Tahrir al-Wasila, or Means of Salvation, which had included a section in which he wrote about gender confirmation surgery. And he'd written then that gender confirmation surgery was not prohibited, although his wording is unclear and it seems that he's talking about intersex rather than trans people. Mm-hmm. So language in Iran, especially at this time, was quite imprecise about the distinction between trans and intersex people. And even into today, you'll see the word dogensi, which means intersex, regularly used for trans people in the media in Iran. Well, that seems like something that could be used to your advantage. <laughs> yeah. It does. It does. Yeah. <laughs> 
But Mariam did also, you know, want a clear ruling that That's wasn't from confusion. Yeah. So Mariam wrote to Khomeini and explained her situation to him. And she quotes his reply, which stated that she had, quote, a religious obligation to have the sex change because a person needs a clear sexual identity in order to carry out their religious duty. So there's an implication here that you need to fall into the gender binary because various Islamic obligations apply to men or apply to women and you need right. to be one or the other. Okay. I see, I see. So he advised her to observe the obligations that applied to women and to observe women's modes of dress and to live as a woman. Mm-hmm. Is the situation less she wants to do this and she's seeking permission and more she doesn't know if she should or not and now she's being told she has to? It sounded more to me like she was like, I want to do this and I need to know whether, like, what religious teachings are on this. Yeah, I'm not really clear. I didn't have any actual quotes from Mariam about why she went and sought Khomeini's advice and so forth. I had various articles I read that said she was a religious woman and she wanted to have some kind of religious Mm. support in what she Mm. did, but I don't really know what her thinking was. I guess there's also a possibility of her being like, she wants to do this and she's like, that would be a big step. I'm looking for mm. just any kind of support or advice or... Yeah, yeah. And we do know, for example, that she came out to her mother and her mother wasn't supportive and that seems to have affected her quite a lot. So Yeah. Yeah. So following receiving this letter from Khomeini, Mariam began to plan to travel to Thailand in order to undergo surgery. In 1979, however, the Iranian Revolution intervened. So I don't have time to go into the complex political detail of the Iranian Revolution, obviously. Mm-hmm. Suffice to say, the Pahlavi dynasty was disliked by many groups in Iranian society. The working class were angry that the Pahlavis were growing rich off oil money while a lot of Iranians remained in poverty. The Islamic clergy, as I've talked about with Khomeini, saw them as decadent and very Western-influenced. Pro-democracy groups considered them dictatorial and autocratic. So, following months of protests and strikes in 1978, the Shah and his family took a vacation, as they called it, in January of 1979, from which they would never return to Iran. Well, that's about as well as that was going to go for them. Yeah. So, during his exile, Khomeini had gained popular support through sending tapes and writings back to be smuggled into Iran. So, he had quite a big profile by the time the revolution came around. And he was a supporter of the revolution. In February 1979, he returned to the country and was greeted by huge enthusiastic crowds. Having gained the support of the military, he, amongst the various revolutionary groups and leaders, was the one to seize control of Iran. Wait, this was the person that she wrote to for advice? Yeah. Okay. It's the same person. So he was considered a very important Islamic figure, which is why she wrote to him for advice and also why he was seen as one of the potential leaders of the revolution because one aspect of the revolution was the Islamic clergy seeing the Pahlavi dynasty as discarding Islamic values and instead taking on American and Western values. Yeah. So on April 1st, 1979, Iranians voted in a referendum for the abolition of the monarchy and the creation of an Islamic Republic of Iran in its place. So Ayatollah Khomeini became the leader of the new Islamic Republic of Iran. Okay. Not everyone who had been involved in the revolution was happy about this. Prior to the revolution requiring allies in other revolutionary movements, such as the pro-democracy movement, Khomeini had downplayed his desire to make Iran into an Islamic republic in favor of focusing on his opposition to the Pahlavis and his commitment to democracy. But once he was in power, it became apparent that his vision for Iran was that of a theocracy. Okay. Khomeini's rule of Iran began with various moral purification campaigns that targeted things that were seen as Western, so this included nightclubs and bars and cafes, also cinemas and so forth. And queer people were also targeted. So, although there was no Islamic ruling against being trans, 
Sodomy under Khomeini's government was punishable by death. Many gay men were imprisoned, whipped, and even publicly executed. And trans women, often mistakenly assumed to be gay men, often faced the same fate. The new government also encouraged gender segregation wherever possible, and strict gendered codes of dress and conduct were enforced. So doctors who performed gender confirmation surgery at this time recall seeing a very sharp uptick in patients that came in seeking surgery, presumably because it became much more necessary to completely medically and legally transition to find a place in what was an increasingly binary and homophobic society. At the same time, however, there weren't any processes in place to facilitate medical and legal transition under the new government. So are these doctors who are performing these surgeries... Is this just like, if the doctor's willing to do it, it's just anyone who asks? At this time, yeah, there's no like process. So it's up to the individual doctor if they want to implement a process in their practice. But yeah, there's no official process you have to go through. It's basically just like, if you can pay for it and find a doctor, then you can do it. Yeah. So on returning to work after the general strikes of the revolution, Mariam was interrogated about her gender presentation and her work set up a meeting for her with a doctor. Mariam says, The doctor and the director of the health clinic threatened me, saying they would set me on fire. Eventually they forced me to take male hormones and go into male clothes. And eventually she, along with several of her trans colleagues, lost her job and she was then placed in an institution. Oh my god. She was specifically told by the leader of the country to live as a woman. She was, but that was in a private letter and it hasn't been translated into public policy. Public policy in any way. Luckily for Mariam, she was released from the institution quite quickly because of connections she'd made with the Islamic clergy, presumably during her efforts to get an opinion on whether she could be trans, I think. But following this, she began to present publicly as a man. She did, however, continue her campaign for legal recognition of trans people in Iran. So now that she's not living as a woman, is she not in danger that people will think she's a gay man and she'll get arrested for that? I think that would be a danger she was in. To be honest, Mm. I don't know how that played out in her life specifically. Okay. She was actually married to a man at some stage, and I'm not sure if it was at this time. I don't have any dates for her marriage. She was married twice in her life to men, and one seems to be earlier on, perhaps around this time, but it wasn't, from what I understand, a legal marriage. Mm-hmm. and I don't know exactly how that played into her situation at all. So Mariam began to arrange meetings with various government officials to campaign for trans rights with varying success, but no policy changes. Eventually, around 1986, she decided the only way she was going to receive a clear ruling and changes in the law was to speak to Khomeini in person. So she travelled to Khomeini's compound where he lived in northern Tehran, And to quote her, I put on a male suit, wrapped the Quran in the Iranian flag, and hung my shoes around my neck. So the shoes hung around the neck is an Islamic symbol that she was seeking shelter. When she arrived at the compound, security mistook her bound breasts for an explosive vest and tried to violently remove her. She tried to explain herself. She recalls, I was screaming, I'm a woman, I'm a woman. Khomeini's brother Hassan Pasandide intervened and took Mariam into his house. There she unbound her chest, presumably to prove that she wasn't carrying explosives. The women in the room hurried to cover her with a chudu, which is the outer garment worn by some Muslim women, which leaves only the face uncovered. And it was agreed to take Mariam to Khomeini. At that point, she fainted. Okay. Mariam woke up and was taken to meet Khomeini. He'd called three doctors to speak with him to clarify the difference between intersex people and trans people, something he still apparently had not understood until now. Okay. Maybe he stopped making policy then. <laughs> 
So maybe when she had written to him in the past, he had read it that she was intersex and been like, obviously you have to choose a gender. Yeah, that, that does seem to be the case, that he hadn't fully understood from her previous communication what her situation actually was. Mm. Oh dear. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So Mariam met Khomeini and they had a brief conversation. She recalls, quote, The atmosphere, the moment, and the person were paradise for me. I had the feeling that from then on there would be a sort of light. Okay. Hmm. I just don't really know what to think about all this stuff, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why did she think that? Why did she think that? Well, Khomeini at that point issued a fatwa which stated that in the name of the Almighty, God willing, sex reassignment, if advised by a reliable doctor, is permissible. And he cited his justification as, quote, the priority of the soul over the flesh. Okay. So what a fatwa is is an opinion given by an Islamic jurist on a point of Islamic law. And there's no special process to issue a fatwa. So it can literally just be you going up to an Islamic jurist and saying, hey, what do you reckon about this? And he gives you an answer. That's a fatwa. Okay. So technically Khomeini's previous response to Mariam written when he was still in Iraq was also a fatwa, but that one was ambiguous about whether it was talking about intersex or trans people. And also in terms of Mariam's effort to get legal change in Iran, it didn't have the weight of Khomeini being the national leader behind it at that time. Okay. So if in the future other Muslim trans people want to get gender confirmation surgery and they went to their religious leader and were like, hey, is this cool? Is this like a binding thing or can they be like, well, I know there's this fatwa, but like I weigh up the different kind of opinions that exist and then I issue my own or like what's the situation? Yeah. So a different leader could choose to issue their own fatwa, which could contradict this fatwa. Mm -hmm. Khomeini's has particular weight just because of his stance and his role as the leader of the country, but it doesn't have any official weight in Islam compared to any other fatwa issued. Okay. Okay. There's not, like, a hierarchy here between Islamic jurists beyond what's, like, public perception of who's an authority. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Khomeini just happens to be a very important man who said this. But this can still be, like, an important ruling outside of, like, Iran at this time. So, like, this could still be something that people could appeal to now. As, like, no, it's fine for me to do this because, like, for example, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this ruling still has importance and definitely people could turn to it outside of Iran Mm-hmm. as an interpretation of, like, religious yeah. teachings. Yeah. And so he did, like, specifically refer to, like, Islamic teachings or Islamic values and saying the soul takes yeah. precedence over the yeah. body as well. I assume, like, that's what that was about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Neat. Yeah. Well, okay. Opinions severely mixed on this guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Ayatollah Khomeini is not, you know, an unequivocally good man well, by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. <laughs> you would say he was a mixed bag. He has had this positive effect in Mariam's life, but, you know, he was also the guy that led to the political situation where she was kicked out of her work and put in an institution. So I think it's less he's a mixed bag and more it's like, well, this one time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. From what we I mean, know here, at least. It's yeah. like you yeah. said, he's clearly making policies about things which he does not understand. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 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 So do you have any kind of indication of why this is the way he ruled on this? Like, is this just him again trying to make sure that people are sorted into the gender binary and getting that Myron was not going to live as a man or, like, could not live as a man? Or, like, is he just genuinely a trans ally? <laughs> I don't have any indication, I'm afraid, right. of what exactly Khomeini is thinking behind this. Was. That's like, fair. the priority of the soul over the flesh seems to 
convey that he just genuinely believed that mm. if you felt like a woman, you should get to live as a woman. Okay. But, you know, then again, I don't want to ascribe thinking to him. And definitely the desire to enforce a gender binary in Iran is a big factor in his policy making mm. and was a big social concern for his government at the time. So I don't think we can assume that yeah. didn't influence his decision. I am, like, sceptical about assigning any just general goodwill to him, <laughs> but also, you know, we've already talked about the, like, problems in if you assume that, like, someone is good on trans issues, they should be good on other issues and whatnot. Yeah, so yeah, maybe yeah. it's yeah. just that. Yeah, yeah. Like, just because Ayatollah Khomeini happened to hypothetically be pro-trans people doesn't mean that he could not be negative in many other ways. Okay. So I do want to note here that Nanjmabadi says she's spoken to three other women who all claim to have obtained the first fatwa from Khomeini regarding gender confirmation surgery. As in three other women who also say they went round to his house and were like, should I live as a woman? And he was like, yeah, actually, you should. I don't know specifically what stories these women told. Natrabadi only names one of them and only gives a first name. Okay. The other two she doesn't name. One's name is Nushin. I don't know if I'm saying that cool. right. <laughs> but yeah, it's quite possible that several trans people did obtain fatwas from Khomeini, rather by letter or in person at some stage at this time or earlier or so it could be that other people had this experience before Mariam did. It so happens that this fatwa is the one that was very widely publicized and that seems to have directly influenced legal decisions made afterwards. Okay. It's such a weird story to have somebody be like, I wish there were legal trans rights. I'm going to go and ask the leader of the country. Can we have that? And for him to be like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what if you just went and knocked on ScoMo's door and you're like, ScoMo, can we have trans rights? And ScoMo's like, let me just ask some doctors. Oh, yeah, legit. <laughs> Imagine if that happened. <laughs> yeah. Imagine if we good. could just go to Skomo's house. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yup. I mean, to be fair, she was tackled by security guards yeah, on her way. Yeah, like, it's true. not like she just walked in and was like, hey, can I have trans rights? And he was like, yeah, no worries. Like, there was so Oh, hey, Mo. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember when we used to write letters. <laughs> the thing where there is, like, stories about him also saying this to three other trans women, though, it really does paint this picture of him just, like, throwing these out there. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, because he was, like, seen as an Islamic authority even before he became the leader of the country, I assume that he was pretty constantly receiving letters like Mariam's on all kinds of topics, just being like, hey, what would you say mm. is the Islamic ruling on this? Mm. Like, I assume that a big part of his life was just answering those letters. So, after receiving the fatwa, Mariam began to live publicly as a woman again, and she was given papers to carry to explain her situation and secure her release if she was arrested for cross-dressing. So is she, are other trans women getting this kind of thing, or is Mariam just special because she's harassed this guy so much? So I'm not 100% clear exactly how this played out. So the fatwa itself, although it was issued by the head of government, was not a legal document. Hmm. But in November 1987, the legal medical office sent a query to the Ministry of Justice for clarification on whether gender confirmation surgery was legal. And based on Khomeini's stance, the ministry responded that it was legal for both intersex and trans people. Okay. It's such an odd situation to be in, like, a legal circumstance where being trans is acceptable, but cross-dressing is illegal. So they're like, okay, we've confirmed that you're trans. We're going to write you a little note. Yeah, that's exactly what happens in Iran mm. now. Yeah. That's yeah. such an odd situation. So there is, like, a very complicated process in Iran now to go through social, legal, and medical transition. And I don't know, which is the question you asked, if Mariam went through this process, if other women right at that time were then expected to go through this process or if this process has been implemented later. 
So is it either at the time we're talking about or now, like whatever, possible to socially and legally transition without medically transitioning or is that functionally just not going to happen? It's not really something you can do. So I'll explain the process to you and you'll understand. So what happens is it begins with a diagnosis of gender identity disorder from a psychologist. I have one of those. (laughs) (laughs) We don't do that anymore though. That's good. And that's followed by an appearance in court to explain your situation and then a request to the legal medical office to be allowed to undergo gender confirmation surgery. I didn't have to do any of that stuff. That's good. So following that, there are further psychological and medical examinations to go through. And during this part of the process, so once you've had your request approved, you can receive temporary documentation confirming you are trans and that you're going to undergo surgery. And that documentation is what allows you to present as your gender in public. And seems mostly to be designed to prevent police harassment and charges of cross-dressing. Does it have like an end date or can you get to that point and then cease to follow up on the process. No, that that documentation is temporary. So I'm not sure exactly how long it lasts for. I read different spans of time, but it okay. seems to be about like six months to a year or two. Okay. It's not something you get to have for a long time. Okay. Okay. So you're then required to live publicly presenting as your gender for six months and then to undergo further psychological appointments to confirm that you are committed to and won't regret a medical transition. Only after gender confirmation surgery can trans people receive permanent legal recognition of their gender. So obviously this is a pretty flawed process. It doesn't leave any space for trans people who can't or don't want to have surgery. And also there's a lot of hurdles to overcome and all of them rely on psychologists and doctors and so far being supportive of you, which they just might not be. Iran is also, as I've mentioned a few times, a very gender segregated society with strict rules of behavior for both genders. And laws against cross-dressing. So the situation is very difficult for any trans people who don't have legal documentation. And it's even quite difficult and kind of unclear what you're meant to do for trans people who are somewhere in this process but have not yet fully legally transitioned. Mm. So several trans people interviewed for that report I mentioned by Outright International told stories of being forced out of university because there was no room for them in the spaces for either gender. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And similar problems also exist with regard to marriage and relationships. So since homosexuality is illegal in Iran, if a trans person is married, their marriage has to be annulled when they transition. Mm. This used to be the case in Victoria. This was the case here till very recently. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Like last year or the year before or something, yeah. It must have ceased to be the case when same-sex marriage became... I don't think it did. No, it didn't. No, it was after that. It was after that. That's... Okay. Yeah. yeah, they brought same-sex marriage in, but for a while they kept the, like, trans-forced divorce thing. Yeah. That's just bizarre. Yeah. Okay. It was weird. Yeah. I will add as well that a lot of these things are also things that either do or have existed in this country or in other countries, mm. like right. yeah. the UK or, like, the United States and things like that. Like, having yeah. to, like, live as your gender before you're allowed to transition is a very par-for-the-course thing that people are constantly just like what is it that you want me to do here yeah 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 i went through this process not to be like hey this is the yeah. awful stuff they're forced to do in iran but partly because i wanted to combat something which i've just kind of seen generally reading about this where people assume that because gender confirmation surgery is accepted hmm. by the iranian government and supported by the iranian government that the process for trans people in Iran is easy and a trans person can just walk in and say, hey, I'd like surgery. And they'll go, yep, no worries. I'll book you in Wednesday. <laughs> Which is obviously not what happens. Can you do to a clock? <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's kind of a difficult thing where, like, we don't want to portray Iran as some kind of trans paradise, but yeah. we also don't want to be like, oh, Iran's, like, particularly backwards or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, like, obviously the, you know, the specific process in Iran is a specific process in Iran, but all those things, like, having to go through psychological appointments and all those things, like, yeah. they happen in a lot of countries. Or even just those things, like, having to have medical transition before you yeah. can change documents. Like, yeah. Yeah, that's not unusual. No. Like, I would say the opposite is unusual. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, none of this is unusual at all. I think one thing that, like, I read about here, which I haven't encountered so much in, like, reading about, like, Australia or America, where a lot of our listeners are from, is the fact that cross-dressing is illegal in Iran, so you do have to carry those papers that say, I am yeah. trans. But otherwise, it's all pretty par for the course. Yeah. So, obviously, a lot of trans people who were at some point in this process but couldn't fit into the gender binary or who weren't going through this process for whatever reason, be that money or having hit any hurdle on the way with a doctor or anything, a lot of them faced police harassment and violence and arrest for things like cross-dressing or perceived homosexuality and so forth. As one of the most well-known trans people in Iran by the 2000s because of her ongoing activism, Mariam was often on the receiving end of phone calls to bail trans people out of jail. And she also began using her own home just outside of Tehran as a center for people to recover from gender confirmation surgery and also somewhere for people to seek legal and medical advice on the transition process. That is good. It is yeah. good. Now she is the one yelling out of a car. <laughs> yeah. Hey. Yeah, she just cruises the streets being like, hey. <laughs> yeah. She has come full circle. Despite the legality of transition, there's also still a lot of social stigma against trans people in Iran, and there aren't any laws even today, as far as I'm aware, preventing discrimination in the workplace, for example. And trans people do face high rates of public and domestic violence. Although Dr. Mir Jalali, who's one of the leading gender confirmation surgery surgeons in Iran, does say he's seen increasing acceptance by trans people's families in the past few decades, which okay. is nice. Nice. How long has this guy been doing these surgeries for? A long time. No matter okay. what period of time I was reading about, he was just there. <laughs> Surely he has to retire soon then. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. He's been around for a long time. Oh, good on him. He's um, just eternal. He was turned into a vampire and he just became a trans doctor. He was like, okay, I guess this is what I do now. I guess if you were a vampire, like, that's not any sunshine in operating theatres. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Such a nonsense comment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can just be on night shifts forever. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The lack of social acceptance does also lead to a reluctance from the medical community to... Can I interrupt? Yes. Sorry. <laughs> Go back to the vampire. <laughs> <laughs> yes, continue. you may. I'm thinking of the tagline of the Lost Voice movie where it's like, sleep all day, party all night, but until it's sleep all day, perform trans surgeries all night. <laughs> yes. It's fun to be a vampire. <laughs> I would, I would um, see that movie if that existed. Same. Yeah. Anyway, please go on with the serious content. <laughs> okay. The lack of social acceptance also leads to a reluctance from many in the medical community to offer gender confirmation surgery to trans people, partly based on the fear that they will regret transition or face discrimination. So even Dr. Mir Jalali says he's quite unwilling to perform surgery on someone if their family isn't on board with it. Okay. Because he's concerned about the experiences they'll have afterwards with a non-supportive family. Dr. Kamya Tavakoli, who's another gender confirmation 
surgery surgeon in Iran says, sometimes I even exaggerate the problems to make sure the SRS, so sex reassignment surgery, candidate is determined and has a healthy set of expectations regarding the surgery. That's not giving someone a healthy set of expectations. No, that's no. not. And like, obviously, this exaggeration of the problems is pretty awful for trans people. So one trans person interviewed for the outright report spoke about being taken to doctors when he was age eight or nine, because he kept telling his parents he was a and they didn't know what to do about that. And he recalls being told, quote, many girls who wanted to become boys died during the surgery, which just isn't true. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I also understand wanting to make sure that your patient has a good support network, but mm. like refusing medical care unless their family is on board on it is also very bad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and like, I know, like, again, like all of this is pretty familiar to stuff that happens in Australia mm-hmm. today. Like I know people who are like, yeah, I'm 30 years old and I'm trying to convince a psychiatrist to let me go on hormones, but he won't let me do it unless my mom says I can. Like yeah. your mom's opinion has not been relevant for 12 years. Yeah, exactly. So going back to Mariam for a while. In 1997, Mariam was able to secure government funding to pay for her gender confirmation surgery. Ostensibly, this funding is something that is available to all trans people in Iran. The reality now seems to be that it's incredibly difficult to access and Mm. what is accessible rarely comes close to covering the costs of transition. Right. So you kind of put in this circumstance where you like have to complete medical transition in order to be allowed to function in society, but also they won't really pay for it. Yeah. Well, that's terrible. Yeah, it's terrible. terrible. So this outright report I read talked a lot about kind of the policy and the budgets and so forth. Mm. And there's a lot of things where it sort of says this much money was allocated to the state welfare organization, which is the branch of government that looks after that for trans people. But then they said once they tried to work out exactly where that money was and how it was getting to trans people and so forth it was just very muddy and unclear and the money wasn't there oh no yeah so you know whether that's corruption or just a lack of transparency or what's happening the reality is that trans people are not accessing this money that supposedly exists for gender confirmation surgery and even the money that does supposedly exist is not the amount that the surgery actually costs yeah so is it still a feasible thing to go overseas? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So that's what Mariam did Okay, in 97. Is that more cost-effective? I'm not sure about the cost. So Mariam travelled to Thailand to have surgery. Yeah. I, would- I know that's a place where people travel to have medical procedures done a lot because it's inexpensive. Yeah, I understand that the quality generally of medical procedures in Thailand is quite good but quite cheap. Yeah. And that is also the case for gender confirmation surgery, which is performed a lot in Thailand. Yeah, I understand that Thailand has a fairly like strong trans culture as well. Yeah, one of the things I tried to find out while doing this podcast and didn't find out was I read in various places that Iran was the country that performs the most gender confirmation surgery and that Thailand is the country. So I was trying to find the exact numbers on either one, but definitely Iran and Thailand Mm -hmm. are two of the countries that perform the most trans surgery. My grandpa explained to me what trans people are once after he and my (laughs) grandma went to Thailand and saw, you know, some kind of performance that had trans women in it. And I was just like, okay. Oh, no. no. (laughs) He seemed quite shocked, but quite on board. Like, not in a weird way, you know, just in a Oh, yeah. Just on a, oh, yeah, I've never thought about this kind of way. Yeah. 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 It was fine. (laughs) I was like, okay, really? Oh, that's interesting. So what else did you get up to? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, Mariam described Iranian doctors as, quote, unbelievably behind international standards. 
when it came to doing the confirmation surgery. And so that was the reason she chose to travel to Thailand. Cost may also have been a factor. Mm-hmm. I hope this works out for her surgery. is so stressful. Mm. Well, it seems fine. I'm not aware of any complications she had. All I know is that she went to Thailand and had surgery and then came home. Okay. Cool. So I Good think that was fine. I would like to do some kind of like history of various procedures that fall under the umbrella of gender confirmation mm. surgery. Because I was thinking about this after we did that episode on Roberta Cow, like last yeah. season or whatever, and mm. we also talked about Michael Dillon in it, who had like the first phalloplasty as mm. far as we know. Yeah. And I was like, but who had the second phalloplasty? <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the things I just came across in the research for this episode was they were talking about how gender confirmation surgery had actually been performed in Iran for years and years. And one thing I read that I couldn't follow up and didn't follow up in too much detail because it wasn't super relevant was that the first gender confirmation surgery for a trans man was performed in Iran in 1930. And I was like, what? What? <laughs> but like, what does it mean? Like, Yeah, what I was like, what did that mean? Does that mean like... Like I, that could have been a hysterectomy. Yeah. I was like, do they just mean a hysterectomy or do they mean what did a phalloplasty? And what we just what did don't you do? know. Because, what did you do? Yeah, what happened? But even like when we interviewed Roland the other week. Yeah. And he was talking about like byzantine trans people and like surgeries that were available then and i was like yeah. what they were doing i mean i guess they were yeah and that's definitely something that's in his book is kind of the surgeries that existed at the time and it's definitely a concept that they had mm. obviously they weren't performing surgery in the same way we are today but they definitely yeah. had a concept of gender confirmation surgery and were doing yeah. it they apparently definitely had a concept of like breast reductions and things yeah. like that yeah so like it makes sense to say the first phalloplasty yeah to say yeah. the first gender confirmation surgery happened at this time it's of a, yeah, that's a, pretty hard to put a yeah. time on. Was there like ways you could have followed this up, but you just didn't because it was outside the purview of this episode, or was that just a thing that was thrown out there? I looked it up briefly and I didn't find anything. Possibly if somebody could read Farsi, they'd be able to find well, a I lot can't, more. So. <laughs> I can't read Farsi. So it said that was the first man and then the first Iranian woman to have gender confirmation surgery was in 1953, apparently. There were apparently like a lot of newspaper articles and she was in the papers about it at the time. So that's something you could follow up and perhaps it would have talked about the first man as well in those articles. Are you confident that when it's as the first man, it means a trans man and not a uh, trans I'm pretty confident, yeah. Okay, yeah. all right. I can't remember like the exact wording or where I read it, but I'm pretty confident, yeah. After using her own home as an ad hoc trans support centre for several years, in 2004, Mariam was called to a meeting with government officials to discuss the situation where she was encouraged to start a formal NGO to support the trans community. Nice. Unfortunately, there were several difficulties in establishing this organization, which would become known as the Iranian Society to Support Individuals with Gender Identity Disorder. Not a very catchy name. I assume it sounds better in Farsi. It might be catchy yeah. <laughs> so, first of all, Mariam wanted all the founding directors to be trans people, but government regulations required that people must hold a bachelor's degree or higher to sit on the board of an NGO. Not okay. sure exactly the details of that law. Sounds pretty sauce. And she wasn't able to find enough qualified trans people. The founding group ended up consisting mostly of cis doctors, as well as an Islamic scholar, and a few others. Mariam was one of three trans representatives on a board of 13. Well, that's not zero, but it's not many. Yeah. Yeah, it's not many. I think that they should, like, start putting trans people through bachelor degree (laughs) to fix this. I think part of the problem, this is a problem they faced when trying to find members for the organization as well, because they needed a certain number of members to become a permanently recognized NGO, was that a lot of trans people in Iran, once they've had surgery and legally transitioned, don't want to be known as being trans. Oh, okay. They want to live their lives just as their gender assumed to be cis. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was quite difficult to find people who had already gone through that process 
who were willing to be part of an organization about it. And so they did also find it difficult to gain enough members to become a permanent NGO. And obviously, as you'd expect, there were also administrative and bureaucratic issues due to transphobia within the government. But ultimately, the organization was launched in mid-February 2008. So what was its goal? What's it going to do? Its general goal was just to support trans people. I don't know exactly what aims they had written down. Their activities seemed to largely have centered around a website which provided news, information about transition, information about doctors. It also provided information on various translated fatwas. And there were active forums and a Q&A section where people could come and ask for information and help and so forth. Mariam was very much the center of the organization. And in the Q&A section, she'd provide a lot of responses that said, you know, if you want to talk about something more personal or something more complicated, she'd just say, look, ring me up and I'll talk to you about it. Wow. What a nice lady. Yeah. Can we phone? She's obviously passed away. She has passed away. I tried to look up this organization. I couldn't find anything about their current activities. They did still exist as of 2016, mm-hmm. but their website would have been in Farsi, and I didn't find yeah. it if it does still exist. Mariam continued to work with trans communities and with this organization until 2012, and she passed away from a heart attack on the 25th of March 2012, age 62. That is quite young. It is quite young. I wanted to end with a quote from Mariam from an interview with Chelterak magazine. She says, I do not like to talk about myself or my personal life or speak only about the day I went to see Imam Khomeini. If you are going to interview me and write about my life, I want you to write about the problems still existing for transsexuals even now that the case is known. I was aware when I was putting together this episode that we've never talked about queer people in Iran before and there is a chance that this is the only time we'll talk about a trans person in Iran given there are you know a, a lot million of, episodes to do <laughs> a million episodes to do and I don't think um, we have any other suggestions of specific people in Iran to be honest not at the moment I don't no. think not so, that you know, I'm aware of please feel free like obviously you know we don't only do suggested topics we can yeah. like, find things ourselves <laughs> yeah but- but suggestions do help. Yeah, I didn't want to make Mariam, you know, a stand-in for the story of all trans mm. people in Iran, but I did want to focus this episode a bit on kind of talking about the trans experience in Iran and expanding on the vague things that we've all probably heard about Yeah, how, you know, it's okay to be trans in Iran, but it's not okay to be gay in Iran and sort of give an idea of what that actually looks like in the life of a trans person. And it's convenient that she tells you to, so. Yeah, and that is what Mariam would have wanted, so I hope that's what we've achieved here today. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And I'm Eli. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find the rest of our episodes on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you find us on Apple Podcasts, or if you just really love us enough to go to Apple Podcasts anyway, we'd really appreciate it if you would rate us and leave us a review there, because it helps us to reach more people. And Eli is going to read us a couple of those reviews now. So we have a review here from Lorelai Fay in the United States, and it is entitled Liberal Propaganda. (laughs) (laughs) Although it is five stars. Uh, And it reads, tries to suggest queer people were invented before 2008. Shaking my head. (laughs) Only the best quality liberal propaganda. Yes. Thank you for that review, for making me laugh, but also for briefly giving me a heart attack. (laughs) (laughs) I have another one from Lowengirl, who is also in the United States, and it's entitled Down Underrated. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was good. Uh, It is also five stars, and it reads, love this podcast, great information and chemistry between the hosts. Looking forward to every episode. 
Oh, that's good. I like that. Let's read one more. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and the last one I will read you is from Pasta Party, their real name, I assume, from Great Britain, entitled Best Queer History Podcast, also five stars. Secretly, they're all either five stars or one star. We don't read you the one star ones because <laughs> they're not worth our time. And it reads, I love this show. It's so well researched and the topics are much more varied than other similar shows, not to put those shows down. They also have many episodes on trans and non-binary history, which is refreshing, and from around the world rather than just the West. And so this is the time. episode for you. <laughs> I also really enjoy their explorations of queer fiction, so it's a really varied show. P.S. Queer as fiction team. I don't have a dog, but my cats are called Monty and Luna. They say hi. <laughs> Uh, please say hi to them. Maybe we should like call out to these cats so they can play this in their house and see if it freaks them out. Yeah. <laughs> Monty. <laughs> um, thank you very much. I would very much like to encourage people to tell us about their pets and reviews. We will be very inclined to read those ones out. And please say hello to Monty and Luna back. Thank you for those excellent reviews. If you want to contact us in another way, you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact, and you can also email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com, or you can write to us by snail mail if you want. And you can find our PO box address on our website, which is queerasfact.com. On our website, you'll also find the sources for our episodes, which we're gradually in the process of uploading, and also links to all our other stuff that we have. (laughs) I'm very eloquent. If you want to support us financially, you can become a patron of Queer as Fact, and you'll also get a chance to vote on the topics of episodes, like today's episode, which was chosen by our patrons. You can also support us by buying our merch off of Redbubble, or if you want to support us but you don't want to do it financially, you can just tell your friends how great Queer as Fact is. If you have any like famous people in your life or you work for a news organisation, you could also <laughs> tweet about us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, pressure them to retweet our tweets. We respectfully acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge and uphold their continuing relationship to the land on which this podcast is recorded. We'll be taking a break for the next month, but we'll be back on the 1st of June with Season 7 of Queer as Fact. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you then. Bye.